Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. The first thing I want to do is give a big thank you to all of you who left ratings on Apple Podcasts. A couple weeks ago when I recorded my last two podcasts, I said I would like to get over 200 ratings, and you got me there. Um, As of this recording, I have 211 ratings uh, on Apple Podcasts. That's great. There's still time to get in. We can keep running that number higher, so please do um, pass the podcast along and uh, be sure to leave a rating. Today, I want to talk about a very uncontroversial topic uh, known as race and uh, hopefully give you a perspective on the way that we talk about it that maybe you'd never thought about um, before. A few years ago, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, and he was talking about this uh, sermon or or, or a lecture that he'd heard from a pretty well-known theologian type in his denomination that he thought was a really good take on the topic of reparations, uh, and it was it was using an analogy to the uh, the Gibeonites in the Old Testament. So, if you don't know, the Gibeonites uh, are when the uh, when the Hebrews went into the Promised Land, they were supposed to essentially kill everybody. And uh, after I think the Battle of Jericho and some of these other battles, this group called the Gibeonites said, "We're toast if we don't do something." And so, what they did was they sort of disguised themselves as if they were travelers from a distant land and came to visit uh, came to visit the Hebrews and kind of fooled the Hebrews into making a pact with them and a, and a covenant with them and then they discover aha we actually live here and now you can't you can't kill us because you've made this covenant with us and later on so that's in the book of Joshua some of this is in Joshua 9 Uh, And then later on, when Saul is the king, Saul decides he's just going to exterminate him anyway because he doesn't like him. And then, of course, Saul, uh, that doesn't happen, but Saul ends up getting deposed. And then David is the king. And when David is the king, there's like a big drought in the nation of Israel. And David's like, what's going on? Why is there this drought? And uh, the word comes from God that God is displeased because Saul was going to violate the covenant with the Gibeonites and uh, and exterminate them. So David's like, well, we got to do something about this. So he goes off to the Gibeonites. He says, we got to make this right. You know, what do you want me to do? Tell me what you want. And the Gibeonites asked for, you know, seven of Saul's, you know, sons, grandsons, male descendants. And so David hands them over and they kill him. And this idea here. Uh, that I think this theologian, and I, I didn't actually go track down the thing and listen to it, uh, and it's not really that, you know, exact important. I'm, you know, we're just using this as an illustration, uh, so I'm not trying to pretend that I got this guy's details all correct, but the idea was when when David wanted to pay reparations to the Gibeonites, he didn't try to negotiate, he didn't try to tell them what they wanted. He went to them, asked them what they wanted, and whatever they wanted, he gave it to them. And so the idea here is white people should just ask black people whatever they want and give it to them because that's the biblical pattern of reparations. And I said, well, you know, that's interesting. That's that's an interesting story. And I just thought about the Gibeonites a little bit. I said, well, what are some other aspects of the story of of the Gibeonites uh, that we can think about uh, if we're going to use that as as an illustration 
of, uh, you know, of kind of modern day race relations. Well, the first thing that occurred to me was after um, David, you know, turns over the sons and they die, I think, I don't think we ever hear from the Gibeonites again. David gave them what they wanted and they basically, they didn't exactly go away, but we never really hear from them again. So it's sort of like, this is a one and done transaction and it's gone. And I'm like, is that really how, um, how things work in, in kind of modern day America? I don't think so, right? Uh, you know, we're all going to be living together with each other uh, for the indefinite future. You know, another thing was that the Gibeonites, uh, although they were sort of tolerated, uh, were not part of, uh, you know, God's, you know, covenant people, and they had no inheritance uh, in the promises of God. In fact, uh, even though they made a... Um, uh, you know, they made a sort of a, a pact with them uh, when Joshua found out that the Gibeonites were going to be, you know, had deceived him. He basically turned them into a permanent surf class. And in fact, in Joshua 9.23, here's what Joshua said to the Gibeonites. Now, therefore, you are cursed and you will never cease to be slaves, both gatherers of firewood and labor to draw water for the house of my God. So is that how we want to think about um, you know, American blacks. I don't think so. I don't think so. So I think there's this there's this thing that we do today where a lot of these pastors like to cherry pick elements out of the old out of these various Old Testament stories, which tend to be bizarre. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, and try to apply them to some aspect of of the contemporary world, but they seldom ever really think through these things or what the genuine implications of these things were. If we uh, sort of applied them in the total fullness of the stories. And there's a lot of things that are embedded in these stories and in general in the stories that we tell that often shape maybe subconsciously how we think about things. So if we start thinking about the Gibeonites and the Israelites as mapping to modern-day race relations, maybe we're not thinking about it in exactly that way, but maybe I think we are thinking about, for example, these are essentially two separate kingdoms, two separate groups of people, not part of one nation, uh, for example. And maybe that would fall over into how we think about it here. And there's a great book that's written on this very topic. It's called Metaphors We Live By, by the linguist George Lakoff and uh, Mark Johnson. And what they uh, argue is that we essentially as human beings understand the world metaphorically. And our language is pervasively metaphorical. In fact, it's so metaphorical and it's so pervasive that we do not even understand that we're talking about metaphors in many places. So, for example, good is up as a metaphor. And, of course, by extension, down is bad. So we might say, for example, I have a runner's high. right? So when I say that, I'm using the metaphor of up is good to describe the feeling I get from running. When I say I'm feeling down in the dumps, right? I'm using kind of the opposite of that, that, that down is bad. And, and so almost all of the ways that we talk about things use these metaphors or analogies to think about it. So Lackoff, for example, goes through all the different metaphors of love, the way that we talk about love. So one metaphor is love is a journey. And he says things, look how far we've come. We're at a crossroads. We'll just have to go our separate ways. We can't turn back now. I don't think this relationship is going anywhere. Where are we? 
Another analogy is that love is a physical force, like magnetism or gravity. I could feel the electricity between us. There were sparks. I was magnetically drawn to her. They're uncontrollably attracted to each other. They gravitated to each other immediately. His whole life revolves around her. The atmosphere around them is always charged. There's incredible energy in their relationships. So we can think about the ways that we might talk about relationships. Another one, another analogy would be love is a patient. This is a sick relationship. They have a strong, healthy marriage. The marriage is dead. It can't be revived. Their marriage is on the bend. We're getting back on our feet. Their relationship is in really good shape. Uh, their marriage is on its last legs, etc. Another metaphor we use, love is madness. I'm crazy about her. She drives me out of my mind. Another uh, analogy, love is war, right? He is known for his many rapid conquests. She fought for him. He fled from her advances. She pursued him relentlessly. He is slowly gaining ground with her. He won her hand in marriage. He overpowered her. She is besieged by suitors. He had to fend them off. He enlisted the aid of her friends. And so there's all these, um, all of these metaphors and more besides that we use to describe things like love. And the attributes uh, of those metaphors can color how we think about the thing in question. So if we think of love as war, uh, which we often do, the battle of the sexes, for example, uh, that causes us to import many of the associations of war into the concept of love, into the concept maybe of marriage. Is, is that really what we want to do? Do we want to import in the uh, all those associations? We probably don't. So thinking about the metaphors that we use and the language that we use to describe things is really important. And, you know, Lackoff and Johnson here suggests that in some cases we might be able to essentially reframe how we think about things by deliberately seeking to impose a new metaphor for the ways that we think about them. So one metaphor that they propose uh, in talking about uh, love is that love is a collaborative work of art. And so what would it mean? To, to have a love be a collaborative work of art. Uh, here's some of the things he wrote down. Love is work. Love is active. Love requires cooperation. It requires dedication. It requires compromise. It requires discipline. It involves shared responsibility. It requires patience, shared values and goals, sacrifice. Maybe there's some frustration in attempting to collaborate with someone on art. It requires instinctive communication, there's an aesthetic dimension. It involves creativity. Uh, it can't be achieved by formula. There's a uniqueness in each instance, this love of art. It's an expression of who you are. And so this is a way to essentially take some of the challenging aspects of love around maybe disagreements, disputes, frustrations, and embed them in a context that is ultimately very positive. We're, we're collaborating on a work of art here. So we know that when kind of two artists try to collaborate, 
there's going to be, you know, some of these tensions and things, but it's in the service of this higher aim that we know this creative tension is going to create something better and different than everyone's out before. So again, I'm not necessarily advocating that we should think about it that way. That is simply the way that we think about it. And so we're always using metaphors to think about things. And so I, I, when I was thinking this, I said, what metaphors do we use to talk about race? What are the metaphors of race relations? And to me, the key metaphor that we use in talking about race is that relationships between blacks and whites are a tort case. So what is a tort case? A tort case is basically a lawsuit. So a tort is a non-contract harms. So uh, if somebody, uh, you know, hits my car or a doctor commits uh, malpractice or somebody slanders me, uh, those are torts and I can file a lawsuit seeking damages uh, to get paid back. So the idea here and the way that we think about it is that whites have done some harm to blacks, have committed torts against black Americans, and now we're we're looking to make a claim. There's you know, Blacks are raising a claim, and the idea is they want to be compensated for the harms. And I think the most clear, uh, obvious demonstration of this is reparations. It's like, you need to pay reparations. You need to compensate me for the harms that you had. Now, is this a valid way to think about race relations in America? I would say yes. I mean, it certainly is a valid way to think about it. Did, did you know, uh, did whites enslave black people? Yes, right? Were there Jim Crow and all this stuff? Yes. Was all there this redlining, all this? Yes. So it's certainly a valid, you know, metaphor to use um, for uh, race relations. Now, applying our lack-off model, though, let's ask ourselves what associations of a tort lawsuit um, might we Im- be importing into our thinking about race relations if we model it metaphorically uh, as a tort case. Well, one thing for sh- uh, one thing right off the bat, tort cases are inherently adversarial and zero sum. So, if you're suing me or I'm suing you, we're in an adversarial position in the courtroom, and one of us is going to win, one of us is going to lose. There's no win-win situation in a tort case. And I think we actually see that today, virtually all discussions on race and the things that we should be doing uh, to uh, you know, you know, improve race relations in America uh, or, or, or uh, help, uh, help black Americans all involve some type of uh, zero-sum thinking, and it does tend to be hyper-adversarial. Uh, the other thing I'd say about a, a tort case is, uh, as with uh, somewhat as with uh, David and the Gibeonites, it's transactional. When the case is over, it's over. There are no further relationships between the parties. So this is not what you do typically when you're on going to be in a long-term, ongoing relationship with other people. Now, is that going to be the case uh, in America uh, for the different races here? No. We're all still going to be living in the same country, in the same communities together over time. So we're not doing one-and-done transactions. No matter what happens in the near term, uh, there's still going to be you know a next chapter in the relationship. A third thing that comes out of a tort case 
is that the defendant is uh, not, not only um, you know has the the right, but also there's an expectation that the the defendant is going to mount a vigorous defense, and that the defendant owes nothing uh, unless you, you, you know the plaintiff can prove uh, to the jury and the standard of evidence that the defendant is responsible for the harm. So if you're suffering, but you can't prove that I'm responsible for it, then I don't owe you anything. And a tort, ca- a tort case is too bad, uh, so sad for you. And so do we actually see this uh, today? I think, uh, you know, you do. It's like, oh, well, who's, you know, uh, you know, why, why are uh, black incomes lower and this and that? And, um, you know, why, why are black home equity lower? And so, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the, the plaintiff case is trying to argue that uh, it's about redlining or it's about this and that. And, of course, it's like, no, that's not why this or all, all of those things have been removed. We, you know, it's all been made good. And, you know, this, can no, this is no longer there. And, of course, there's no judge. There's no jury, per se, in this case. So you essentially have to, you know, convince the defendant, uh, you know, himself uh, to, to essentially accept the responsibility, which is something we don't have. So you, you have essentially people who, in a tort case, you're expected to argue that you're not responsible. And you really don't owe anybody anything unless it can be proven that you do. So is this model really a healthy way to think about race in America? And does it reflect the reality of sort of the conditions in which, you know, blacks and whites find themselves? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think this is a particularly good way to think about it. So what would be, what would be, if we're going to do the the, the, the reframe, if you will, if we're going to impose a new metaphor on this, what would be a you know, a metaphor that might have a better associations with it. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and the metaphor that I came up with is that blacks and whites are a recovering dysfunctional family, okay? So what would that mean? Well, let's think about that. What does it mean to be kind of in a recovering dysfunctional family? So I think the first thing is, can there be torts or harms or wrongdoing that's done within a family? Yes, obviously, and I think, in fact, we know that kind of wounds within families are often very long-lasting and very difficult to heal. And in fact, sometimes not, not never actually do heal, right? It's actually a lot easier to deal with something like a car crash because, you know, the insurance company can just write a check and repair your car, right? So whereas, you know, with these sort of interpersonal wrongs that are done in families, we know that they're much more complex and difficult things. And I think that's a better um, a better description uh, or maybe a better way that we would aspire to think about um, race relations. So I say that, you know, we can say that it's dysfunctional in the fact that we can recognize that these uh, these harms are there. But to say that it's, you know, we're recovering is, you know, we're, do- we're doing something about it. We've been doing something about it. But maybe it's not, you know, we're not, it's not all done yet. Secondly, improvements in family dynamics are positive sum. So unlike in a in a tort case where if uh, if I win you lose or vice versa, if you can fix a family fight or a family dispute, things get better for everybody. It's a lot more pleasant at Christmas or Thanksgiving or a lot of these things. There are systemic benefits to improvement, and so I think anytime when you can, you know, come up with a positive sum solution rather than a zero sum solution, you're going to be in a a better state. The other thing about um, families is that there's a permanent, ongoing 
relationship. You know, families are not one and done transactions. And I think that's much more uh, reflective of the realities uh, of America, where we have these different ethnic groups that are living here. And, you know, even if, uh, you know, one or more of these groups wanted to separate, uh, it seems extremely remote that that's going to happen. So we're essentially, you know, we're essentially, you know, stuck here with each other, uh, just like family members. And we're going, you know, so it, it, we should adopt that sort of long-term mindset towards the issue. And I think a fourth thing is that, you know, we are willing to help family members regardless of who is at fault. And we could think about, you know, a cousin or an uncle who's, you know, gotten involved. Maybe they have, maybe they, they fall into a drug addiction or something like that. Typically, even if we think, you know, that person, you know, did it to themselves, we're still willing <laughs> to help them out. So it, it, it's not a situation where you're constantly having to say, I'm not going to help my family members out unless, you know, they can prove to my satisfaction that I'm responsible for that. That's not how family dynamics work. And so uh, and that's not to say that there's no discussions of blames or all those things. Obviously, there are, but it takes place in a very different dynamic. And so I, I think about this metaphor, and I'm, there's probably other ones that say this would be a far superior um, reframe of racial issues in America. Now, is that going to happen? No, uh, almost certainly not. Uh, but uh, it shows, uh, it's what it shows, it shows that there alt- are alternatives to the present ways of thinking about these things, that the ways that we think about race, in many respects, it's not even about, you know, scholarly research about, you know, f- you know f- facts or whatever. It's about metaphorical conceptions uh, of these things that shape profoundly the way that we think about the world. And so, I, you know, I would just encourage you to... Uh, you know, not just in the matter of race, but in the matter of everything, think about and try to tease out the metaphors, the analogies, the ways that we're thinking about and talking about the issues, and then take a step back and say, what are all the implications of that that may be shaping the way that we're talking and thinking about them in ways that we don't even know or not even conscious of. Uh, and again, the book, uh, again, I'll tell you the name of the book, and I'll put the link in the show notes. It's called Metaphors We Live By. Uh, it's by, you know, uh, George Lakoff, and uh, is it Greg Johnson? It's a Mark Johnson. And um, it's it's a really interesting book. When I read it several years ago, I thought it was super fascinating. Now, I didn't come away with a lot of obvious to-dos or ways to apply it, but this idea that the metaphors which we use, which again are pervasive in our language to talk about things, they shape our conceptions and they shape our reality. It powerfully shapes the way that we see reality. And, you know, and we really need to seek to be um, aware of them. So something to consider. Uh, again, thank you all for listening. Leave a rating on Apple Podcast. Uh, please share with your friends and I'll talk to you next week.